a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharpest flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire. Secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his walk, made his eyes red and his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty ice was on his head and on his eyebrows and his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about within him. He iced his office in the summer and didn't thaw at one degree at Christmas. Charles Dickens could have told us plainly that Scrooge was a cold old man, but he didn't. He didn't tell us. He showed us. And another of history's great writers, Anton Chekhov, said it this way, Don't tell me the moon is shining. Show me the glint of light on broken glass. God has done this for us in his word. Narrative or or story or prose, it comprises about 40% of our Bible. Men moved by the Holy Spirit recorded his word, these wonderful true accounts of history as God worked through his people. And as the authors recorded this, they didn't just tell us who God is, they showed us. And this also has been the case in the greatest story ever told. It's the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus showed us. Now, there are places where he told us. He told us who God is. There's even a place, a few places, where it's veiled at times, where he's concealed himself from some. But in his ministry, God constantly shows you, and he shows me who God is. Our Lord Jesus does this again this morning. He performs three miracles to display who God is. God is restoring and healing and feeding. He restores by faith. He heals by grace. And he feeds with compassion. We need these miracle accounts today. You and I need to engage them in the people of the stories. We need to taste the tears of the mother. This woman agonizing over the demonic possession of her daughter. We need to endure the embarrassment of the man who had no leg. He literally hopped or was carried throughout his life. And we need to feel the burden of staring into the eyes of need. Our gospel author, Matthew, he he shows it all. And he then shows us how Christ fixes it. That Jesus fixes all of it. And what I hope you see this morning is that if Jesus can do this, 
to these people as he did so long ago, how much more can he heal you? Well, we're picking up in Matthew chapter 15 today. We're in verses 21 through 39. These are three miracle accounts, as I mentioned, and we're going to begin with the first. It's the faith of a Canaanite woman. In verses 21 through 28, we see this, and we see that Christ restores by faith. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Jesus traveled to a town called Tyre and a town called Sidon. This is Gentile land. Now, that may not mean a lot to us, but that was a huge deal back in the ancient Near East in the time of God's people, the Jews. They were God's chosen people. The Gentiles were everyone else. You were either Jew or Gentile. And again, these Gentiles were unclean, they were immoral, they were pagan. The two cities mentioned in our account this morning are going to be the leading cities of that region, a region called Phoenicia. In the Old Testament, it would have been called Canaan. Matthew picks up on this. Notice how he calls her a Canaanite woman. That means that this woman came from a people group roundly denounced in books like Deuteronomy. In chapter 7, verse 2, we learn that the Canaanites were a cursed nation. Chapter 18, their practices, they were extraordinarily wicked. They were quite sinful. Maybe someone could be a Gentile, but to be a Canaanite, there is no lower low. And again, all of this matters because of last week. We were in Matthew chapter 15, those first few verses. We saw last week that Jesus taught us what is clean and unclean and has nothing to do with a bar of soap. Your hands might be clean in verse 2, but by the time we got to verse 18, well, the heart, if the heart is unclean, that's a whole other matter. That's the issue. What Jesus shows us, that the standards for cleanliness, they're outside tradition. He goes to the Gentiles. And this Canaanite woman comes up to him and cries out. In verse 22, she is yelling. She is shouting. 
The tense is imperfect, which means she continued to do this over and over again without any particular end in mind. Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. She understands who Jesus is. He is the master, the Lord. He is the king of the Jews. And she comes to him on behalf of this suffering child. It would almost be better if the mother herself was demon-possessed. You know this feeling if you're a parent. And if you're not, put your shoes in that of a parent to see your young child suffering. There's nothing that you can do. It would be easier. You'd rather suffer in their place. This is an unbearable torment for the mother as well. To see her little girl suffer and to be helpless. So she comes to Jesus and she screams in pain. And he did not answer her a word. What? This is not the Jesus that you and I know. Just last week, he had all kinds of things to say to that group of last week. The the Pharisees and the scribes. He had much to say to his antagonists and his deceivers. All that time he spent dismantling their hypocrisy. But now, agony falls in a heap at his feet. And he's silent. We're going to see that I believe that he's up to much more here than what may appear on the surface. And it's also a good time to note that the message of Scripture, as we look at it in its entirety, is that God is never far from our pain. And it's worth mentioning, especially around this time of year, that there were 400, what are called 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New, this this time between Malachi and Matthew. This period of time where God stopped speaking through his prophets. And then what happened when he did speak again? The incarnation. In other words, there are times where God has a huge blessing of a plan after those silent times. I find here that, that the silence of Jesus makes this scene even more chaotic. I mean, we already know that the mother is in just complete disintegration over this. I think we're almost squeamish to think about the particular hell that her daughter's experiencing in this moment. And Jesus here, he's he's acting very uncharacteristic. It it throws us off. You know, if if you know someone, if there's someone close to you who, who you know and who you love, when they act different, when they act out of character, there's something unsettling about that. It, it creates uh, an insecurity or an uncertainty. I mean, we don't know how to, to quite process when those things happen. And then to add to all this, his disciples begin to protest. They can't take it. They, they want her sent away. That request in verse 23, it it could be taken as them being insensitive or them being cold about the whole matter. But based on the way Jesus answered it, I believe that they they genuinely wanted him to help her, but to probably just resolve this situation. 
And then in verse 24, Jesus does speak. He answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I brought God's kingdom to the people of Israel. I came for them. As Paul would later write, it's to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Now, I imagine for the woman at this point, it's some strange blend of both jubilation and desperation. The mother comes, Jesus has spoken, and she bows down before Jesus. And it was probably all that she could do to speak, Lord, help me. If you have a pulse, you know this. There are times in life when this is all we can utter. It could be in between sobs. We can barely catch our breath in a moment. It could be adrenaline. It's, it's pumping. It's impossible to form words, let alone think thoughts. It could be the shock or the trauma of a situation. And it's a, a one-word reflex. We just cry out to God, help. And if you have not encountered these situations yet in life, you will. And when you do, this is the way to pray. Because Christ hears those prayers. Lord, help me. That is a completely appropriate way to pray to God. Because he will. Because he understands. Because he's with you in those moments. And I'm arguing this morning that he's not only present, but he is active. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is a family first statement. This is the picture of a, of a family sitting around a dinner table having a meal. They're eating. And around their feet, on the floor, are crumbs, but also dogs. Now, the Greek word is, is little dogs. It has to do more with maybe a house dog or a, a pet dog or a lap dog. Not a big dog lover. I struggle most with the little ones that sit in people's laps. No offense, it's okay if you love them. We all have different buttons, right? In the ancient Near East, though, dogs were, were street scavengers. The Jews looked down upon the Gentiles. They called them dogs. And I, I, I tend to think, I wonder if there was some double meaning intended here, that Jesus was trying to, to capture a, a broader point. But, but, but the main point is that these dogs are not getting the food first. In fact, the best part of the food is given to the family members, those seated around the table, family first. And I love the response of the woman. Her ability to respond with, with such clarity under such great stress. It comes out of her, like, right away, she knows just how to respond. Do you ever have those moments where maybe you're driving or reflecting back upon some exchange you've had, and you're like, man, I wish I would have thought to say that. But she does it here, and she responds almost very naturally to it. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. You know, some of us are going to be half empty type of people, glass half empty type of people, or, or glass half full. For her, she's a glass half full type of woman. <laughs> she said, did Jesus just call me a dog? 
Praise God. Because good owners don't let their dogs die. And she says, I'm not trying to steal dinner. I just want a piece of the meal. And Jesus says to her, oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done as you wish. Can you imagine her walk home that day? To get home and to pick her daughter up and to hold her again. Praise God for his healing power. He restored her by faith. We know that faith or that belief is foundational. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says it this way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The Bible tells us and the Bible shows us. Christ's response to this woman's faith. And I want to explore three virtues here. Three virtues of her faith that are worth imitating. First is her persistence. Does this stick out to you? Her persistence stands out to me. She kept on asking. You and I need to keep on praying. We've prayed for an associate pastor for about a year. Keep on praying. Keep on asking. Some of you have family members or or friends who have not yet come to faith in Christ. Keep on praying. Keep on asking. In fact, I believe that this initial silence by Jesus, remember how his first response was nothing. He didn't say anything. I think it's meant to draw this out of the woman. He's exercising her faith. This silence exercises the faith of that woman. In fact, this is reaching down and molding her soul in a way that wouldn't happen had he solved things right away. It's a persistent faith. It's a persistent prayer. It's a virtue worth imitating. Secondly, notice her reverence. She treated Christ as holy. Three times in our passage, She calls him Lord. In fact, each time she speaks to him, she calls him Lord. Verse 22, verse 25, and verse 27. Now, culturally, in the time of Jesus, it was respectful to call someone Lord. Maybe we would say that as as a sir or a mister in our day. But I think the context here, it forces us to think that there's more going on than just a respectful exchange. She has some excellent knowledge of who Jesus is. She has come in in faith and in confidence that this Jesus can restore her daughter. In fact, I say she has an excellent theology. She certainly casts a shadow over the religious leaders we saw last week. She calls Jesus the son of David. Here's a Gentile, a Canaanite, Someone who's noticed that Jesus is the king. He's the promised Messiah. He's God's son. He's the descendant of King David. And she approaches Jesus with a reverence. Good theology does this. You and I, reading our Bibles, immersing ourselves in the word of God, it produces within us a reverence for Jesus. There's a belief as we grow in our faith, a belief in who Jesus is, 
that's going to foster this kind of confidence that she had, this kind of trust that she had. And this takes us to our third observation. The mother in this account is humble. She is humble. She's reverent, persistent, and humble. She models for you and I how we must come to Jesus. Have mercy on me. Notice here that she is not coming to Jesus making demands. She isn't coming to him claiming privilege. She does not come entitled. We need to come to Jesus empty, not entitled. Entitlement is going to prevent mercy. Entitlement is a roadblock. Entitlement is a wall. If mercy is in the other room, entitlement is the locked door to get there. And I say this because entitlement is pumped into our heads in our culture. What does it keep telling us? You deserve. You deserve. You deserve. If we stop long enough... To look at our hearts, we'll, we'll see it. We'll see the, 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 the ripples of the entitlement stone that's been thrown into the pond. We'll see the effects of entitlement. Maybe it's self-pity. Maybe it's double standards. Maybe it's seeing other people as a threat. Again, the symptoms of this sin can be seen around us. It can be seen in us, I should say, if we stop long enough to look. Now, to be clear... Nowhere does the Bible say that entitlement is a sin. But the scriptures do address sins that come together to produce entitlement. Covetousness, greed, vanity, and pride. When we act entitled, we we cannot obey Philippians 2, verse 4. Do not merely look out for for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. We can't do that if I'm only thinking about myself and what I deserve. Friend, there is one thing that the Bible teaches you and I deserve. And praise Jesus, he dealt with that at the cross. Because he is a God of mercy. And this mother found mercy because she came to God. She came to Christ empty and humble, undeserving. She comes to Jesus without pretense. And if you come to Christ empty today, you too will find mercy. Paul writes it this way. Yet for this reason I found mercy. So that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for all who believe in him for eternal life. Jesus restores by faith. And if you believe upon him this morning, he will restore you to a right relationship with God. You will not get what you deserve when you die. You get heaven instead. Now, our next two points this morning are going to move a little more quickly. We're going to see a summary of the Lord's healing ministry. We've seen one of these already. Matthew provides them from time to time in his gospel. And our last point is going to be a miraculous feeding. It's a miraculous feeding of another large crowd. We saw one of these already in Matthew 14. Let's look at the next three verses, verses 29 through 31. 
Jesus heals by grace. It's our second point this morning. Jesus heals by grace. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid him down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Jesus remains in Gentile territory. Remember, this matters because he is a Jew, and at that, he is a teacher or a rabbi. Again, Gentiles were unclean. They're living outside the promises of God, outside the covenants of God. In fact, they became targets of some pretty hefty hatred by the Jewish people. And again, our Lord, he is challenging these prevailing beliefs. And he's going to tear down this dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. All can come to God through him by faith. Now, Mark's gospel records this same scene. And he indicates that they traveled from Tyre and Sidon to a place called Decapolis. Decapolis is a ten-city region. And again, it is largely Gentile country. Verse 30 lists the type of people that were brought to Jesus. And verse 31 lists the result. We see first that the mute speak. The word for mute is used to describe someone who's unable to speak. We see that sense in verse 31. It's also translated elsewhere as deaf. Mark's gospel records that Jesus healed one man in particular in this scene. Quote, a man who was deaf, that's the same word as mute, and he spoke with difficulty. And if you're familiar with some of the the miraculous uh, accounts of Jesus' ministry, this is the one where Jesus puts the fingers in the man's ears. It's it's the one where he, he spits and he touches the man's tongue. And he yells, be opened. We see that the cripple are restored. The cripple can mean maimed or deformed. It's a disability in one of the limbs. I like the word restored. It indicates that Jesus put it back to its original state, or he he puts it as it should have been. The lame walk. Consistently walking is the solution for lameness in the Gospels, meaning this is some kind of leg or foot affliction, and the blind see. Jesus literally restored vision. It's important to note that throughout the Bible, the word blindness is also used of our spiritual condition, but there are also times like this where Jesus physically healed someone who was blind. The point here is that in every case, Jesus healed. He heals a vast array of disabilities, of diseases, of deformities. He heals a wide variety of sins. All who come and lay down at his feet, Jesus heals them. He's going to heal those who come and lay down at his feet because they know something is wrong. He's going to heal those who come and lay down at his feet because they know something's broken. And in verse 31, the crowds marvel at what they've seen, and it says they glorified the God of Israel. 
all that Jesus did, every, every waking moment of his existence, I suppose when he was sleeping too, but every minute of his life it was lived for the glory of his Father. So consistent was Christ's commitment to God the Father that at the end of his life, listen to how he prayed. John 17, verse 4. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Christ lived for his Father. Christ pointed to God. You and I live in an era of incredible resources. There has never been a time in in the history of the world when so many resources are available to you and I to grow spiritually, to grow in our faith. There's books and magazines and movies and music. It seems like every minister has a platform. Each week we can choose from thousands of online sermons and podcasts and social media platforms. What do we listen to? There's so much to choose from. Jesus models the ministries that deserve our ear. Which ones? They point to God. They magnify God. That's what Jesus did. Everything about his ministry pointed to God. It magnified God. Not ministries that magnify men, but ministries that magnify God. And Matthew reminds us that this God, this God in the person of Jesus Christ, he is quite able to heal. And again, if he can heal the mute and the crippled and the lame and the blind, then how much more can he heal our spiritual condition? He shows that he is able, that Jesus heals by grace, and Jesus restores by faith. Well, thirdly, I want us to see our last point. Jesus feeds with compassion. It's the last few verses of Matthew chapter 15. Verse 32, and Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy so large a crowd? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish. And giving thanks, he broke them. And started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. Sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. Well, by way of review, I hope you know where Jesus is right now, his location, the kind of places he's been hanging around this morning. Where's Jesus? He's among Gentiles. That's right. Not so loud next time. That's right. Jesus is still among Gentiles. He's out there showing that he can build that bridge to people that are outside of God's chosen people. And if this was not enough of the Jewish rabbi that he's out among the Gentiles, 
that he's already traveled to this place called Canaan, that he spoke with a relative of demon possession, someone certainly unclean, that he went to another Gentile region, and while he was there, he proceeded to heal every kind of ailment brought to his feet. This Jesus, notice verse 32, after three days, he felt compassion. You might recall a similar emotion back in Matthew chapter 14, verse 14. There again, Jesus served the people. In fact, he performed the same miracle. He took fish and he took loaves and he multiplied them. There was 5,000 men plus women and children. Now in verse 38, he fields 4,000 men plus women and children. And again, he does it out of compassion. What do we know about the Bible? The Bible doesn't just keep telling us that he, sh- that he has compassion. The Bible shows us. Five loaves, two fish, a choir of growling bellies. God in the flesh is able to sympathize. All the way back in chapter 4, verse 2, we learn that, that Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights without food. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He understands need and he wants to help. And I say it's no accident here that the compassion of Jesus has come up again in Matthew's gospel. I think Matthew wants us to understand that. Again, in both cases, Jesus is largely before a Gentile crowd. Again, these are pagan people. They're probably not looking to get in line for the next Bible study. But nevertheless, he loves them. And it's compassion that's moved Jesus to help. In fact, compassion completes the steps. To be aware of a need, to have the means to meet that need, compassion moves us to act, to go and meet the need. Well, in this message today, Jesus feeds with compassion. And he's healed by grace, he's restored by faith. And at this time of year, as we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate John chapter 1, verse 14. There the Bible says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ shows us God to bring our message together today. Restored by faith, he heals our infirmities, and he does it with compassion. So my question for you this morning is, is where are you in that statement? Where are you in that sentence? Have you been restored by faith? That's the first question. That's fundamental. That's the, the foundational question that anything else must build upon. Have you been made right with God? The Bible teaches that you and I are separate from God. We're we're separated because of our sin. But that by believing in Jesus, that he's died for our sin, we can be restored and restored by faith. Do you believe that? How about healing? This faith in Jesus, it's not the end. It's just the beginning. It's the beginning of the most amazing relationship you and I will ever experience in this world. We come to him with our sins and we receive healing. 
That isn't some one-time event that took place in the past. We keep coming to him because he keeps extending grace and compassion. How do you envision this Jesus? I guess I should ask, what kind of Jesus do you envision? And is it based upon the scriptural teaching on Jesus? In these last two chapters, twice Matthew showed us that, that Jesus is a God of compassion. But if we're not careful, perhaps we can mold Jesus into the kind of Jesus that we like. A Jesus to fit with our view, or, or it's possible to reinvent him. To swing too far in one direction, there's the loving Jesus. This is the Jesus who is always uh, affirming. The Jesus who is, is always validating. There's the gentle Jesus. This is the Jesus who, is, who says, don't rock the boat. It's peace at all costs. There's the doctrine Jesus. The Jesus that we might use for academic study, for theologizing. There's warrior Jesus. I read last week of a man who, 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 who said, quote, I, I can't worship a guy that I can beat up. That, that, that man is looking for a, a strong Jesus. There's the rebel Jesus. The Jesus who spoke against religious leaders. The Jesus who basically ignored the politicians. However we think of Jesus. May it always be informed by Scripture. May we always see this Jesus also as a God of compassion. Because that's going to work in you. And if you see him as compassionate, it's going to work through you. And when you struggle with some besetting sin in your life, you need to remember that he is a God of compassion. And when you look into the needs of people as you encounter them in the world around you, Jesus is a God of compassion. He's a compassionate God. He's a healing God. He's a restoring God. And he is a God who doesn't simply tell us. He shows us. Amen. Let's pray. But Father God, thank you for showing us who you are in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us your word that it is filled with such rich descriptions and scenes and narratives, encounters of our Lord. I pray that Jesus would show himself to each of us in our lives and in our experiences, that we would taste his forgiveness, that we would receive his grace, that we'd be empowered by him to do all of the holy work given to us in your word. Oh, I pray for us today, Lord, that you would set our hearts afire, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.